When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. subsidiary. Of the BBC. So it was in northern Peru, and it's this incredible, pristine piece of Amazonia, completely untouched. We arrived in the flood and the waters were rising just as we got there, and it was amazing. Suddenly, very quickly, everything was completely inundated and there was no dry land in sight. It was really, really beautiful in the peak of the flood. You get this incredible, deep, inky black water it's just this very ethereal world. It's, it's bonkers. It kind of feels alien. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that's always on the lookout for signs of approaching danger. You start the story with a single fire ant scout detecting the rising water levels and coming back to his colony to alert the army to what was happening. In this episode, we're taking lessons on teamwork from the natural world. We're discovering the wisdom of crowds and finding that when you really want to get things done, it makes sense to work together. We start deep in the leaf litter, right down in the soil, in the Amazon rainforest in Peru. The yearly floodwaters are rising fast. We're in the company of a colony of fire ants, and we're about to witness them perform a truly extraordinary act of teamwork. You'd first see a kind of trickle of two or three ants, and they'd suddenly go into kind of panic mode, and they'd start moving really, really quickly. And at that point, hundreds would come out, thousands would come out, and then quickly there'd just be this river of ants boiling out from out of the ground, you know, from nothing. There's just this river of fire ants coming together. It was clearly this kind of emergency mode that they were going into. Quick, evacuate, get everything out. And the priority was always get the eggs out, get the queen out. And with the waters rising around them, they all press together and they link arms and they form this incredible raft. Here, watching the fire ants with us, is Toby Nolan. My name's Toby. I'm assistant producer on A Perfect Planet. A Perfect Planet is the BBC natural history series, all about the forces that make our world so perfect for harbouring life. This series of the BBC Earth podcast, we've been catching up with some of the crew about the adventures they've been on. We were going to some of the most remote and secluded places, often completely pristine. Ants, of all species, are fairly famous for their collaborative abilities. They build the nest together, raise young together, share the spoils of their scavenging with the whole colony. There's no better example of all for one and one for all in the animal kingdom. But this particular behaviour, to use their own bodies to build a living raft and escape the rising floodwaters, is impressive even by their standards. They have special hydrophobic hairs on their bodies, so they're actually water-repellent. 
So if you look at an individual ant on the raft, you'll see that when it puts its legs down on the water level, its legs sort of make impressions and press it down as if it's a silk cloth. And when they link legs with each other, they form a fabric which has the same structure as Gore-Tex. They kind of link arms, form this incredible structure and then head out together. It's absolutely tiny. The fire ants are surprisingly small. I mean, we're talking two millimetres. So in a single 50 pence piece size raft, you could, you could have tens of thousands of these ants in. It's amazing. It meant that there were individuals at the bottom of the raft that were kind of expendable. And, you know, these poor guys at the bottom, they'd, a lot of them would drown, a lot of them wouldn't make it. That's the amazing thing about ants, is every move, everything they do is very well calculated. It's always for the greater good, for the survival of the colony, and individuals are expendable. They form this little boat, this little raft, and they just drift off at the mercy of the current, and the flood will take them to a new location, and it actually acts as a way of the species being able to disperse and access new areas of the jungle. So in a way, it's a kind of vehicle for them to get to new spots and, and spread out. And they, you know, there's lots of stuff they face along the way. There are, there are these fish that go for them, there are birds, they'd be dive-bombing the raft in an effort to split up individuals, but the raft as a whole, as a single unit, was really hard for them to attack. There are these water boatmen, they were insidious actually, that was amazing. Sometimes he'd be able to coax a fire ant out enough to get it on its own and pierce him with his proboscis and just suck his living juices dry. It was pretty grim, but, but the amazing thing about that was that it really demonstrated the value of togetherness for the colony. One fire ant on its own was barely water repellent at all and was much more vulnerable to being picked off by fish and, and water boatmen, but as part of the raft, your chances were much better, so it really was kind of all for one and one for all. The first thing they hit, they'll climb up, and that could be after two minutes or it could be after three weeks. We filmed them heading into this amazing Vasia flooded forest palm with these incredible fan-shaped fronds. And I guess they didn't have much choice. That was what they happened to land on, so they went for it. They had this real kind of strategy. They were like, OK, first get the eggs up, then get the queen up, and then just created this ladder system back to the raft, down to the last survivors of the raft just kind of holding themselves there, patiently waiting for the last ant before they could join them. That was very cool. But the fire ants weren't the only creatures in the Peruvian Amazon who had to deal with treacherous stretches of water in slightly unreliable craft. Yeah, so the fire ant shoot... <laughs> uh, was it amusing? I don't know. Um, the fire ant shoot was more adventurous than I was expecting. You know, you, you head out to the Amazon to film ants. You think it's... On paper, it looks like the most controllable shoot. But it turns out we were to join the fire ants in their rafting behaviour. We were heading back down one of the main tributaries of the Amazon River and we were in this long, narrow boat and that's what they use for these water taxis up and down the river. And it was completely loaded up with our gear on the roof and inside. And the currents were really strong and I think the skipper just wasn't used to having 
such a heavy payload of all of our kit on it. The first sign was when we felt ourselves tilting into the water. I guess for the first 10, 15 seconds of the boat tilting into the water, you kind of go with it and, and everyone goes, Wee! and you sort of assume it's going to right itself. And then when it doesn't, your mind kind of enters a different mode. And, and it's it's very it's interesting what the human mind does there because it's very matter of fact. And it everyone was sort of like, right, okay, this is happening. The boat is now capsizing. Everything's going under. The kit's going under. Most of it's floating downstream. We need to get out of here. Right the way down the boat, there were all these open windows. They were too small for anyone to swim out, but big enough to just fill up with water. So the boat very, very quickly filled up with water. At this point, John Brown, the cameraman, and I, we were inside the boat as it was filling up with water, and we grabbed our little personal bags, which was just, you know, our passport, basically, and, and swam through the boat and made for the exit. Yeah, it was, it was pretty sketchy. Um, it was the kind of situation you, you could panic in quite, quite quickly but it wasn't and it was okay and you know everyone had their head screwed on. We were close enough to the edge of the river to swim up to a kind of muddy jetty and eventually climb out. Meanwhile the boat just started to completely sink. We recovered all of the bags, I'd say more than half were flooded. Turns out many of them aren't as waterproof as they sell themselves to be. Obviously the main worry was that after a month of filming in mosquito-ridden swampy jungle you didn't want all that effort to go to waste so you wanted to check that the rushes the footage had come back safe so we kept two sets two in separate bags and one set was completely flooded completely ruined I was like, oh my god so all hopes were pinned on this last set of rushes and uh and they were dry miraculously so it was it was saved but it was it was very close we nearly lost everything which would have been such a shame that would be pretty hardcore if we were kind of throwing ourselves out the window and taking one for the team just to get the rushes back to base <laughs> but yes um it's definitely it certainly drills home the kind of the ant philosophy, which is very, very different. It's not an individualized system. It's all about, unless you're the queen, of course, it's all about preservation of the colony. Life simpler like that, I guess, for a fire ant. <laughs> If you want to float downstream alongside a raft of fire ants and see for yourself the scrapes they get into, you'll want to check out A Perfect Planet from the BBC. It's out now in the UK, or check the BBC website for when it's coming to your neck of the woods. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're getting lost in the crowd and finding that in the natural world there's often strength in numbers. The tougher life is, the more we need those around us to get us through. When you know your buddies have your back, you can weather the coldest of winters. Our next story is about a group of animals that are famous for sticking together through thick and thin. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And when they show up, they all show up. It's magnificent because you have like these tiny little groups of five, ten penguins arrive in April. You know, weather is so bad that you have to be in the base for a week or ten days. You don't get to see anything. And suddenly, when you come back out, there are 25,000. Your entire landscape changed. It's filled with life and filled with noise. Daniel Zitterbart is a scientist who, like the best of us, didn't have much of a career plan as a teenager. Uh, to be honest, I, I chose to study physics because I did not know what else to do. Uh, when you're like 19, you have no idea. And I was always told that if you do physics, your options are less limited later on in life. So Daniel fell into the field of cancer research. He looked at how a cancerous cell impacts all the other healthy cells around it and moves around the body. To do this, we used an assay where you put the cell on a soft gel and the gel has thousands of tiny fluorescent beads in it. When the cell exerts force, those beads get moved. And I had an algorithm designed that was able to track all those beads at the same time to get a picture of how the motion is. But spending your days staring intensely into a petri dish of microscopic beads takes its toll. I kind of got fed up with being in the lab and decided I want to do something more outdoorsy. So I applied to overwinter in Antarctica and uh, take care of a geophysics lab. The next thing Daniel knows, he's studying earthquakes in the middle of an Antarctic winter. It's really wild, you know. When it's not a sunny day, but it's overcast and you have a little bit of fog, the snow just damps everything. It's something that in, in our busy cities we hardly find. It's the most peaceful place I've been to. Peaceful, that is, except for a colony of emperor penguins who call the Antarctic ice sheets home. Of course, they make some noise. But you don't consider that noise. <laughs> emperor penguin colonies are something pretty fantastic. The emperor penguin is the only vertebrate that actually breeds during Antarctic winter. It just evolved to cope with the conditions there. They live just along the ice shelf edge, which is basically a floating glacier, and then you have this big drop-off between 10 and 30 meters. Once the sea ice is stable enough to support the penguins, they basically come from the open ocean and select places which are very sheltered, where they know that the sea ice will stay frozen and solid for as long as possible. Come one, come all. Tens of thousands of penguins make the journey from the ocean to this exact spot on the ice to breed. The female lays the egg, then hands over the job of incubation to the male, while she returns to the ocean to hunt. And there he stays, the egg balanced on his feet in a special warm pouch, inches from the ice, in gruelling conditions. But there's something remarkable about the way they've learned to cope. For emperor penguins, 
Survival is all about sticking together. When the temperature goes down, you know, and it starts to get cold, like for example the sun goes down or a wind comes up, they build these huge packs of penguins which are called huddles. Seen from above, these huddles resemble a kind of organised chaos. A bunch of penguins tightly packed in the middle, with others round the edges seeming to join in and leave as they wish. But Daniel had spent years investigating cellular movement, and his physics brain kicked into gear. What kind of dynamics actually drive those huddles? You know, How do they coordinate each other? How do they stay as close together as they can? Because you must imagine if you take a group of humans, let's say you take 3,000 humans and you put them that tight altogether, they will stumble eventually you know, and there will be kind of a panic. And penguins manage to uh, do this willingly and coordinate themselves so they maximise energy savings and do not panic. Daniel was struck by the similarities between this mass of bobbing penguin heads and what he'd been observing back in his lab in the Petri dish. The penguins' behaviour, and especially the huddles they do, resembled a technique that I had used before to study cells. There's no outer force, but there's an inner force. That is how the penguins move themselves. But if you look at the penguins from the top, you see the bright yellow patches on the heads in that sea of black. And so those, for me, resembled very much the cells and the essay I used before. And I figured, OK, why not try and see if the algorithms we have allow us to understand the dynamics that's going on in those penguin huddles. So uh, I started kind of hack my SLR camera that I had there so it could take a picture per second. You know, the dynamics is so slow that you actually only see it if you look at it in a time lapse. And because I could only take one picture per second, it was automatically a time lapse. So they are in these big groups and suddenly one animal starts to move, but they are very, very tied together. So if this animal moves and comes closer than about two centimeters to the animal in front of it, the animal in front of it will also start to move. And so all of them make a little tiny one-step motion and this motion travels as a wave throughout the whole colony and then the colony comes to a standstill again. This is, resembles like a Mexican wave in a stadium if one person gets up and everybody around get up. And penguins do this every 30 to 60 seconds. Each time such a wave runs through the huddle, the penguins reorganize themselves a tiny little bit. But by reorganizing, they optimize the packing and uh, that ensures that they lose as little energy as possible. And less energy loss ultimately means a better breeding success. Daniel observed that although each penguin moves individually, only concerned with keeping warm and staying upright, the end result is an amazingly efficient heat distribution for the entire group. The middle of the huddle is a stable and toasty 21 degrees centigrade. It took a physicist's approach to understand why. Back then, this is for me, that's almost 20 years ago, biologists were still not doing a lot of math. Of course, there was always the biologists very good at math, but I think this changed a lot in the last 20 years. Although Daniel might have stumbled on many things, his career as a physicist, a penguin huddle in Antarctica, time-lapse footage of a Mexican wave, what's clear two decades on is that these happy accidents defined the rest of his career. Today, he uses robotic time-lapse cameras set up at several Antarctic research bases to watch the penguins from the comfort of his desk. When I look at the camera system today, I see almost only chicks. 
So we had a big storm the last couple of days, so all those chicks are bunched up against the ice shelf. So we have actually quite nice tight roofs. Daniel's not the only one using maths to better understand the complex behaviour of animals. I'm a mathematician by training. My whole life I thought pure math was my calling. And all of a sudden when I discovered that math could be a way to think about biology, I was absolutely drawn into it. I study the organization of complex systems. Let's say a flock of birds or a school of fish hundreds or thousands of individuals that are beautifully self-organizing. They're all doing these gorgeous motions of the entire group without any bird accidentally flying into another bird. How is that possible, right? So mathematical models can give you a lot of insight into these why questions. Uh, my name is Corina Tarnita, and I am an associate professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University. But this isn't a story about a flock of birds or a school of fish. This is a story about another organism that Karina and her team became enthralled by, a creature that also has some spectacular collaborative abilities. An organism that's a little less glamorous, perhaps, but fascinating nonetheless. We're talking about slime mould. And what kind of creature slime mould is, is not immediately obvious. Slime mould are free-living, solitary cells. They live in leaf litter and they eat bacteria, so they're predators of bacteria. As long as they have food, they're solitary cells, each individual doing its thing, eating and dividing. As soon as they starve, they undergo this extraordinary process of coordination and, and aggregation that results in the formation of what first looks like just a heap of cells. But eventually, that heap of cells transforms into a multicellular organism. It looks a little bit like a slug. They're kind of grayish dark, and they're tiny. I mean, they're a couple of millimeters. And it crawls around. The slug is very efficient, much more efficient than any single cell at moving around. When it reaches the right conditions, that slug turns into something like a mushroom. We call it a fruiting body, basically a stalk on which a globule of the remaining cells becomes spores. And those spores are easily dispersed by, let's say, passing insects. As soon as they get to a place where there is food again, they immediately become separate, individual, solitary cells that start their reproduction. It's a very interesting system because they're not obligately multicellular. Their life is actually about being solitary. It's just that when they are in really stressful conditions, they become multicellular to navigate those conditions until food returns and then they are able to start their cycle as solitary individuals again. About 20% of the cells that were part of the original heap of cells have to die to form the stalk. The other 80% become the spores. So it's a very altruistic process whereby you have a chance in five to die. So there's no guarantee that multicellularity will be good for you. But in principle, you also have an 80% chance of becoming a spore and therefore surviving. So why does it make sense for cells to undergo this aggregation process, given this potentially very, very high costs. Karina was working on quite a specific slime mould problem in her lab. When you look at these mass aggregations of cells, the tiny slugs, the mushroom-like stalks and the spores, 
you notice a curious thing. They're not all the same kind of slime mould. They're genetically different strains, different species of slime moulds, all working together, collaborating across species boundaries to make a single, temporary organism. Karina wanted to know why. Why collaborate with creatures who don't share your genes? It was this problem that she was working on when she noticed, almost by accident, something else very interesting about the aggregative behaviour. Something that the other slime mould scientists had missed. I just happened to be at a conference and someone was talking about the slime molds and started to show some videos just to give us a sense of what are these things, you know, how do they look? And I immediately noticed that there were some cells that just didn't seem to aggregate. They seemed completely oblivious to this very complicated coordinating behavior that all the other cells were undergoing. These ones just seemed to be just continuing to do their thing, which was mainly to just move randomly. Why would starving cells not go into the aggregate? Somehow that question became this obsessive thing for me. And the answer was more or less like, yeah, I don't know. They, they seem to be, something seems to be wrong with them. They're somehow broken. Their program is off somehow. And they're not responding to starvation in the way they're supposed to. And somehow that answer was not satisfactory to me. I thought, but what if it's actually something interesting in these cells? She set up a lab to study the mysterious slime mould loners in more depth. It wasn't until my graduate student, Fernando Rosina, joined my lab and it turned out that he was a phenomenal experimentalist. He turns out to be absolutely ingenious and I started to call him the amoeba whisperer because somehow he was able to always get these amoebae to reveal themselves to him in a way that they had not revealed it to anyone else. What we wanted to do was to count this number of loner cells. What Fernando found was a constant number. No matter how many cells you started with, he was always finding the same number of loners. This was not randomness. This was clearly a behavior that was genetically encoded somehow. These seemed to be a meaningful part of this organism's strategy. I mean, that was a moment of just pure joy uh, because what was just a hunch to begin with, just a curiosity turned into an obsession, actually turned out to be true. But why were they doing it? Why do some cells of one of the most collaborative species on the planet choose not to go with the flow? So ecologically, they're a bet hedging strategy. They have to undergo this multicellular process to survive starvation. But the multicellular process is costly. Not only do you have to take a risk of possibly dying in the process of making the aggregate, but also it's a time-consuming process. And you're completely committed once you started it. If food comes back in the environment for some reason, you can't say, oh, hold on, stop, there's food in the environment, let's just break up and start eating again. That's not possible. If there are any single cells, they can start eating immediately. So if you live in environments where on average food might come back after a couple of days, it might make sense to leave a few cells behind just in case. This evolutionary pressure, which pushes organisms to evolve both collaborative crowds and a few loners going their own way, is not limited to slime moulds. Actually, a whole lot of systems seem to have loners. Almost every time when you have an absolutely remarkable coordination process of many, many individuals, you invariably find individuals that seem to be out of sync with the majority somehow. They're just not doing what everyone else is doing. 
locust swarms, for example. Locusts are nothing but grasshoppers that are starving, and that triggers the behavior of swarming, and they become these extremely destructive locusts. So at some point in these enormous swarms, some individuals start peeling off, and they revert to being solitary, completely benign grasshoppers. Similarly, if you think about the wildebeest migration, there seems to be some small number of wildebeest that just don't go to do the migration across several countries. So they just stay behind because when you stay behind, you'll actually have first dibs on the best grass and the best conditions. The loners in slime molds kind of for the first time made us realize that these out of sync individuals might actually be instrumental to increasing the robustness of systems. If you think about humans, right, if we think about loners in humans, right, we think that it's sort of a choice, right? It, this is your personality. You're just kind of a loner, right? But it does make me think that the fact that it's so repeatable across taxa and across very different scales from microbes to mammals, it just seems like there is something to it. It's not just a one-off. I find that to be a really interesting, very complementary take on the evolution of social behaviors. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, and by Eliza Lomas. Don't be a lonely little amoeba. Sign up to our newsletter at bbcearth.com forward slash newsletter to be part of our crowd and get a dose of animals, nature and science in your inbox whenever you need it. And join us next week when we'll be asking some questions that don't necessarily have answers and investigating some of the natural world's most intriguing mysteries.